Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. Glad you joined us today. We're talking to Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum. If you heard his testimony in our Grace Stories, if you haven't, you need to go back and listen to it. But if you heard that, you've already understood a little bit of the context of where he is coming from as a uh, brought up in strict Hasidic Jewish background um, and uh, traveling across the world, landing in the United States, getting the- becoming a Christian, getting theological training, um, Dallas Theological Seminary, New York University, where he wrote his dissertation on Israelology. And so uh, when I think about Arnold Fruchtenbaum, as many do, we think of just uh, a lot of information and a lot of knowledge and a lot of wisdom crammed into one person. And the outflow of that is a ministry that he started and now directs called Ariel Ministries, which has a lot of uh, Messianic emphasis, Messianic Christian emphasis to it. So today we're just going to, we've heard his testimony, we're going to engage a little bit in uh, some discussion of uh, some theological issues about uh, Israelology, what is that, and uh, and uh, what's our relationship to the law maybe, and what's going on in Israel today, and the anti-Semitism that we see. So, very interesting discussion. So, anyway, welcome again, uh, Dr. Fruchterbaum. Thank you. Okay. Um, so, I think people hear, heard a little bit about your background, and I'm interested myself in um, I haven't read your dissertation, so I'll, I'll say that, but uh, this is what you did for New York University, Israelology, the missing link in systematic theology. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. And why did you, why did you write that, and what, what are you trying to say in that? Well, the idea came to me when I was a student at Dallas, and I was taking as many courses by Rari as I could because I was just then it started to get interested in systematic theology uh, and so on. And uh, and as we went through it all and things of that nature, a thought came to me that if we got to the section on ecclesiology, if there is an ecclesiology where everything about the church is dealt with, past, present, and future, how come there's no Israelology? Hmm. And in my first three years of uh, covenant theology school, I can understand why they would not develop one, but in a dispensation school, it, they should develop one. And uh, so after I graduated and other things came up, I wrote a letter and uh, asked them, because uh, they had just mentioned they're going to have a section on Chinese uh, uh, Chinese studies. I'm not sure how that affected biblically, but it didn't matter. I just what I'm saying. Well, if you can have a department of Chinese studies, you should also have a have a specific department and and uh, systematic theology studies on Israel, Israelology. Are you oh, talking the, about New York University that you wrote? Uh, this is that Dallas. Uh, you wrote Dallas with this letter. When I wrote it, it was at I was at New York University. Mm-hmm. The thought developed me, and I'm still at Dallas Seminary. Okay, got you. And that's and, and that's how the thought developed. When I got a letter from one of the professors, uh, uh, Daryl Bach, he says, "Well, we don't need to develop a Jewish studies department. We have an excellent Old Testament department." Which was that told me to understand the difference between Old Testament studies and Jewish studies? Does that 
they're not co-equal. There's just some overlap, but not a lot of overlap. Mm-hmm. So I dropped it for all day when I began um, New York University for my PhD. That's when I came in with the thought of developing a systematized Israelology from a dispensational perspective, because the only perspective that would give you a complete study. So I put together a, a dissertation, but it turned out to be 2,000 pages long. They wouldn't accept anything that long. So 3,000 or 2,000? Pages. But they wouldn't accept it because of its length. Mm. So reduced it to about 400 pages, which this is what I turned in. That's not what I want to finish with. Mm-hmm. So I, got in, I got my PhD, but then I took that and went back and did my, and I did what, took my 2,000 pages, able to reduce it to 1,000 pages. That's the book that is still published today. We have an abridged version of it today. We have Israelology, about 1,000 pages, that covers all the details about Israel past, present, and future, plus other topics that could not be limited to a time zone like past, present, and future. And we still publish that book. We also have um, a shorter, um, abridged version that focuses only on Chapter 10 of that longer Israelology, and then some of the appendices and, and things of that nature. And so that is... That became one of the key courses of our summer school program when we started that um, 49 years ago. The summer will be our 50th year, and uh, but they hold up. But they give a complete study from the Bible. What does the Bible teach about Israel? One of the two chapters. There was the Vatican. My first chapter is just introducing all the terms. Then the two chapters on the post-millennial. Um, Israelology, then Amulet Israelology, two chapters, then premillennial, non-dispensational, and they some do better than others, but never have a complete element there. And then uh, finally, I put I did my own work. So what dispensation has done very well is is Israel and Bible prophecy the future, done very well as far as past up to the end of the Old Testament and into the New Testament, but they, they know nothing much much about Jewish history since that point of time, which is part of Israel's history and so on. Hmm. Um, the, and the weakest area was Israel present. And so it, Dr. Pentecost says, well, the, the, the covenants are now in abeyance, not operative today. Or, and, and so and so these these are not necessarily functional covenants. Well, I couldn't understand that. These were unconditional covenants. And then so on. So I, I did a whole He thought that they he was teaching that the covenants had been suspended. So so use the word abeyance, whatever that means. But not, not <laughs> I don't know, I need to look that word up. Abeyance, um temporary not operative today. Yeah, not operative today, but not canceled either. No, no, never held a cancellation. Right. So, and, but it was not operative today and, and those things of that nature. So, and then another mis, another prereq, uh, preconceived notion is that God cannot work with Israel and the church at the same time. Well, yes, he can. Israel became a state then, still, that was still in the church age and things of that nature. And uh, Israel captured the old city. The church is still not raptured, and so on. So God could work with both with both peoples at the same time, but He will He remove the church sometime before the tribulation starts. We know we don't know when, but sometime before the tribulation starts, will be gone. 
those are the, the key elements. And we started that school with teach, uh, teaching that on a regular basis. I also put together a Life of Messiah four-volume set where it deals with all of the uh, rabbinic backgrounds and so on of first-century Judaism, which is right. what's being out in the Gospels and the Book of Acts. And mm. so those all have become now, now available. That must have been quite a work. When, when did that become available? Well, that's become available. Uh, the four volumes that became available, I think at least about 10 years ago now, we put out a one volume for people who don't want to read all that material. Yeah. The the black the one the abridged version simply provides all of the same details as the four volumes said, but doesn't provide the sources. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the four volumes said we provide all of the rabbinic sources and things of that nature. So if they're willing to go through them, it's available. Now, uh, just back up a little bit. Uh, you're dispensational Bible training at Cedarville and at Dallas Theological Seminary, um, it, it shaped your thinking of Israel, or perhaps you had that thinking already. Um, can you explain to listeners why dispensational position and interpretation of scriptures, what is it, and why it's important to the study of Israel? Well, one of the things they say, covenantal premillism and dispensational premillism has some key differences. In covenantal pre-mill, that this will undergo a national salvation, so most Jews will get saved, but they'll just be inaugurated into the church, and the church will be the main element in the kingdom. But uh, dispensational continues with a consistent distinction between Israel and the church, and God has a special future for Israel. There are covenantal promises and prophetic promises that have not been fulfilled to this day and actually won't be fulfilled until the Messianic kingdom is established. Even they told Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob individually, he'll give them all this land, but the most they own is some wells, and that's it. And so at what point is he going to fulfill those promises? So that requires a resurrection of the patriarchs, requires the establishment in the land and things of that nature. So we need to take God, what God says about Israel seriously, and that and there'll be a consistent distinction between the church and Israel. So the apostles, for example, laid the foundation of the church. So they're part of the church, and when the rapture comes, they also go. But when the kingdom is established, what is the role of the apostles? Twice the Messiah said they'll sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. They'll be part of the Jewish government of the Messianic kingdom. And uh, and so on. So, uh, Jewish believers will have another separate role for the kingdom because they're part of the outworking of the Abrahamic covenantal promises. And one of the distinctions of dispensationalism is that they keep that clear distinction between the church and Israel, whereas uh, other systems will teach that Israel replaced or, or the the church replaced it or Israel replaced the church, I, I, or the church was the Old Testament. Israel, um, however we say it right, correctly, but uh, they saw no no distinct future for the nation of Israel. Right. Yeah, the, there's so many prophecies about the kingdom that it clearly shows a distinct future for Israel. There's also some of it in the New Testament, not as much as in the Old. Still, there's even the New Testament is there, like the role of the apostles and the kingdom. They won't, they're not functioning in the church, they're functioning as the 12, uh, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. In 1948, when Israel was given land, 
in in Palestine, what we'd call Palestine area, Canaan area, uh, whatever it was called back in those days. Did not that turn a lot of theologians' heads and change their theology, or did it? I think that's when dispensationalism began to be so very popular. The, the establishment of Islam forty eight, the take the capturing of the old city and the temple compound in sixty seven. That, that really made this possession of a breath of fresh air and, and so on. So a lot of people were moving into a dispensational group. Now, in the four years I was in Dallas, what surprised me is how little we had as far as being taught this uh, a, a systematic dispensational theology. Uh, there were things taught here and there, but there was never given to us a class that the focused on dispensationalist theology. And uh, and so on. So when this possession was was beginning to be attacked, how many churches that used to be dispensational have transferred to a someone that one of the three covenant schools? And I noticed also um, a lot of the churches they just support us when they passed through changes and they moved from a dispensational to a covenantal position. They would drop supporting us and other dispensational programs and so on. So uh, we need to make sure people preach what dispensation does teach is over against what it does not teach, because all too often they're being taught, mistaught about what dispensationalism is and, uh, and things of that nature, and that they need to know what we do believe, what we do teach over against what we do not teach, what we do not believe. And it's not always clear to a lot of people that go to different schools nowadays. Yeah. What are what are some examples of those differences that uh, you're talking about that we fail to teach? Well, it's in the seminary. I went to the the king of dispensational schools at Dallas Seminary, but never got a course of dispensational theology as a whole. I learned that on my own. Mm, that's true. We we never did have a course on that. I never had a course on that. I never had the They just simply assume by going to that seminary, that's what we'll learn. But what, unfortunately, that's not always true. And a lot of these students didn't come from dispensational backgrounds, and they need to, they really need to learn specifically what dispensationalism is as over against what it is not. So we're not being told seven different ways of getting saved, for example, and, and statements like that nonsense. That's not something dispensationalism has ever been teaching. So the dispensational understanding of scriptures, taking the scriptures literally, grammatically, um, uh, in its clear sense of the language, yields us dispensationalism. And that's kind of the baseline for Israelology, because without that, we have promises about Israel that are either applied to the church or misinterpreted or allegorized spiritually. And so they really become meaningless. But let me ask you this. When Israel went back to the land in 1948, were given the land in 1952, I guess, recognized by the UN, how would you see that as fitting into the scriptures? Because the scriptures tell us that Israel is judicially blinded by God. So do uh, you see this as, as God's working uh, regardless in spite of or despite their blindness, their spiritual blindness. Well, the sausage goes, already goes back into the Hebrew Bible, like especially in, in Isaiah 49, 
verses 1 through 13, where it pictures the Messiah as being discouraged because of Israel's rejection, and the message comes to him that the Israel's rejection did not catch the Father by surprise. It was very much part of God's plan. And for a period of time, he will be delighted to the Gentiles, and there'll be a period of Gentile salvation, but eventually Israel will come back and become believe on him, and that's when the Messianic kingdom will finally be established. But these are all Old Testament basics, even the outline of Romans in Paul follows chapter 49, uh, uh, outline and so on. So what was already happening by New Testament times was already uh, prearranged by Old Testament times that this is what God said would happen. There would be a, a long period of time of uh, Gentile salvation, but that will never lead to the exclusion of all Jews. There will always be Jews coming to faith. There will always be a remnant. Uh, sometimes the remnant was small. Elijah's day, 7,000 out of how many Jews were there. Counting Elijah, Macbeth, 7,001, very small imagination. The southern kingdom probably had more than 7,000, but in the modern kingdom, that was the maximum right there, at least as at a point in Elijah's lifetime. And at the end so, of Romans 11, uh, Paul explains this, I think, and and mentions that the the God turning away from the Jews provokes the Gentiles to jealousy. Can you explain what that phrase means? How does how does Gentile I'm sorry provoke the Jews to jealousy? The Gentile salvation provokes the Jews to jealousy. How does how does that work, or how do you understand that? I, I print together in this biology. There's a special section in Romans nine through eleven. And the key word was parazelao, para meaning come alongside of, and then the Greek word zelos, which could mean either to be jealous or to be zealous or to be envious. Hmm. And this that I'm putting the one word together, Paul was saying he's quite delighted that God called him to do Gentile evangelism, not because it's easier, but because what he saw was that a Gentile becomes a believer in the Jewish Messiah, and he should um, living same being by side by side by a Gentile or by a Jew, he should live the kind of life that the New Testament says we should live. But that alone doesn't save anybody. Then secondly, there must be a clear presentation of the gospel message itself, and that should provoke the Jews to jealousy. Sadly, much of in church history, the church has provo has provoked the Jews to anger, not to jealousy. Hmm. Because the Jews for Jesus did a survey a couple of decades ago among North American Messianics. When the question was, did you come to faith to a Jewish believer, Gentile believer? Not just a small portion, but a majority of came to faith to Gentile believers that provoked them to jealousy. That's true in my own case. Wow. So, yeah, I, I when I think about that verse, I think, well, most Gentiles... And churches make Jewish people angry in their presentation in the world in general, which is nominally Christian, like the things that we see going on today, provokes the Jews to anger or fear even. Uh, but the jealousy you're talking about when we when you when the Jews see the zeal that Gentiles have for their Messiah, for their Jewish Messiah, is that fair to say? Yeah, that's the, that's the way it should have worked, but unfortunately, even among even just some evangelical uh, people, Martin Luther, 
his last few years was very anti-Semitic. Right. He understood grace, the salvation by grace. I'm sure he was saved. But um, the way he turned against the Jews was not going to provoke any Jews to jealousy. Exactly, yeah. And that, that spirit of anti-Semitism. So I want to talk about that because, you know, we're all surprised to see that in Martin Luther, who we usually, you know, lionize as the hero of the faith who changed history and the church and theology. Uh, and yet he hated the Jews. Was it because they rejected the gospel? Well, all the reasons we don't know, but because he fell with this new, the, the new emphasis on what is a Christian, that they'll, they'll see we're not the same as the Catholic Church, and therefore they, they should see that they need to come to our faith. But I don't think he realized by then there were centuries of persecution by the three C's, and so Jews were always suspicious. Crusades. Crusades and so on, and uh, that kind of thing. So that became more of a problem, and then and, and so on. So uh, you have to really be very careful how you how you get the message. If you just say church, Christian, cross, better to just say assembly, better to say believer, better to say assembly, and things of that nature. Why well, use certain words that automatically raise up the wall in light of Jewish, church and Jewish history? That's a good point. And don't call your ministry Campus Crusade. Call it change the name as quickly as you can if you want to reach the world. But can we talk about anti-Semitism today now? Because it's something that has persisted throughout history, but also throughout the Bible. And when and you know, frankly, we you and I know the Bible and many others know the Bible. We we know anti-Semitism. We know what's behind it. But frankly, I'm like many people in in that I'm watching in the news and listening to. They're surprised by the degree of it. They're just they're surprised by the intensity of it today. What's your perspective on that? Well, I think the Holocaust gave anti-Semitism a bad name for souls, so it became kind of downward. I think it was always present to some degree, uh, and and exposed itself in various ways, but they always had to keep it kind of under the carpet or under the towel or whatever. But what happened with the uh, with the situation October seven, where in one day, uh, one thousand four hundred Jews got killed for no reason than other reason than being Jewish. And when this were retaliated the way the Bible said they would retaliate much more severely, uh, and so on in the Genesis passage, all of a sudden you had in all the cities in the USA, different parts around the world, they also pro-Palestinian. Well, that had to be something underground for a long time, not becoming super popular, and so on. Why didn't they raise up objections to what they for the mass murder of Jews on one day? They didn't. And Israel has the right to defend itself and things of that nature. So taken to the principle of Hagar that the angel of Jehovah mentioned to her, this was would have been in that in uh, would have been in chapter sixteen, where uh, where Hagar gets pregnant, she's she runs away. Angel tells her to go back and then says four things. Number one, you shall bear a son and call his name Ishmael. Number two, he'll be a, he and his descendants will be wondrous in the desert. Point three, he will attack those other cultures. Number four, they will counteract and attach him. And uh, and so the two brothers, the two closest brothers, Isaac and uh, Ishmael, uh, 
of Israel and Jacob, who were their twin brothers. Uh, not excuse me, Jacob and uh, Esau were twin brothers. Mm-hmm. And God sustained the covenant through Jacob and not through Esau. And mm-hmm. so Esau had to leave the land and settled in what later became uh, Edom uh, after him. But uh, that animosity has continued and continues to this day. And there's a spiritual element too, right? I mean, from the very beginning, Genesis 3.15, we see Satan is going to be persecuting, trying to destroy the woman's seed, which Paul tells us is Christ. It's primarily spiritual, but works its way out in the physical as well. Mm-hmm. Definitely a spiritual conflict. This isn't just a like the church I'm attending at the moment, the pastor didn't want to say anything because he didn't want to get involved in politics. Well, the issue here is not politics. They need to read chapters like Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy chapters 28, 29, and 30. It's not, it goes beyond merely a political or racial issue. That's yes, something it- well, Jews they hated in countries where their Jews not don't even live anymore, never lived there. Like Japan, that Japan never had any great number of Jews. Yet you find the anti-Semitism even in Japan. That's amazing. So the spiritual influences around the world. It always gets me to watch these uh, pundits on TV or listening to them on the internet or radio, and they they're scratching their heads. Where is this hatred coming from? What's the? And they're talking about context. But if they only understood the Bible, they would have their questions answered. Anybody that understands the Bible knows exactly where this anti-Semitism comes from. And uh, it's not reasonable. It's spiritual. Right, exactly. The primary problem is spiritual, and it moves out into the physical. But let's talk about the politics of it a little bit, because the argument that is used is that uh, the Jews want to uh, exterminate or commit genocide on the Palestinians, and that the Palestinians are rightful owners of the land. So does Israel have a a right to the land. How do you argue that? Well, they argued biblically, it says was land because God says so in the Bible. People take the Bible as being Holy Scripture, and therefore, and don't try to reinterpret certain passages that you may not like, that uh, it, is a, it is a biblical issue. And so uh, Satan's war against uh, that is begins in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seat and her seat. And the Palestinians never had a nation. No. Did they? The name Palestine was named after the Palestinians by Hadrian at the end of the Second Jewish Revolt in 135 AD. But it became known as that. But interestingly, the term Palestinian for a while, for long while, was applied to the Jewish population, not the Arab population. Mm-hmm. Well, so, the Six-Day War, this was true. My major Hebrew university was called Palestinology, but that was applied to Jews back then. After the Six-Day War in 1967, slowly things began to change. The word Palestinian was applied to the Arab population and not the Jewish population. But the early Israelis called themselves Palestinians. And there was no Israeli underground because out of Poland was the Palestinian underground. But at that point, that term was meant for Jews at that time. And it just referred to the region, people from the region. 
from the region, and this was and dealt with the focus on the Jewish population in the region. It became transferred to the Arab population only after the Six-Day War. So you mentioned the tie of the Palestinians to their Arab roots, and it goes all the way back to Ishmael, of course, but why then are the Palestinians not taken care of? Why are we, the United States, supplying humanitarian aid? Why isn't Egypt, why isn't Saudi Arabia helping their Arab cousins? Well, they, for some reason, they thought then that, that they would win their war independence very quickly and uh, that they would win and they would run. And uh, when they, that failed, Gaza Strip was won by the Egyptians until this, until 1967. So for 19 years, the, the Arab population of the Gaza Strip were under Arab authority, but the Egyptian Arab authority. But, uh, then Israel took over. It was uh, and did they work until uh, they pulled out? And and uh, but the God promised or said would happen in Genesis fifteen and so on. There'll be a continuous and sixteen, I should say, continuous animosity of the Arabs towards the Jews. Mm-hmm. And the other six sons that that Abraham had largely were became the population of different Arab tribes in what is now Yemen and uh, Saudi Arabia. But even they developed this animosity against the Jews. Mm-hmm. Islam became the main religion of the Arab population. They targeted the Jews for not converting. In the same way, the Martin Luther, in a different way, uh, would, yeah, failed to get the Jews all converted, and he became, already was, very anti-Semitic. Yeah. Well, it's it's a tragedy that uh, there's been so much violence in that area, but that's that's history and that's predicted and that's prophecy. Now, how do you how do you see this recent war? I, I guess it's yet to have a name: the war of against Hamas. How do you see that fitting into scripture? Uh, I, maybe it's a question you can't answer specifically, but maybe in general, or can you answer it more specifically? Specifically, we cannot because there's no specific prophecy about this present-day conflict. But if you if you go to those four chapters, like a Silurus twenty-six, there would be twenty-eight, twenty-nine, thirty. It points out that about the Jewish failure and so on, and that if they're obedient, they'll be safe, they'll be kept successful, and things of that nature. But if they disobey, they'll fall into different periods of disobedience. First will come subjugation, fulfilled by the days of the judges. Secondly, captivity, fulfilled by the Assyrian and the Babylonian captivities. And thirdly, worldwide dispersion, which resulted for their rejection of the prophet like unto Moses. This is the background. Mm-hmm. That's how you got to Poland. That's exactly right. Yeah. So, so the conflict will always be there. But theologically, it should be remembered that God, that they're still the chosen people. And uh, the Abrahamic covenant guarantees the land belongs to Jewish people, but the land covenant says the enjoyment of the land will be conditioned on obedience. And I just want to repeat those chapters that you mentioned, Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28, 29, and 30. It's just for our listeners' sake, I wanted to repeat that. And so for what they would realize is that in disobedience, as long as they're failing to believe in their Messiah, they will have the attacks outside the land, 
uncommon, but also they'll have a tax inside the land. There was never a time that there were no Jews in the land, but for many years they were a small minority, and the smallest they were, they're being attacked and attacked. So October 7th shows another example of what the prophet said would happen, that this would be a continuous ongoing conflict. But uh, so in the realm of that larger picture, so yes, October 7 fits a role, and for also that Israel had the right uh, to counterattack, which is what is happening. But as far as having peace, with, uh, they can call for a two-state solution and so on. But ultimately, peace will come when uh, Israel becomes a believing people, and there'll be, well, some Arab nations are going to be totally destroyed, like Southern Jordan, or represented by Edom. But then and the Ammonites and Moabites, which also primarily Arab today, undergo a national conversion. So it'll be some good news. Egypt also undergo a national salvation. There are the old native Egyptians, the Coptics. Most Egyptians today are part of the Arab invasion. Mm. But the, Egypt has a, few, a positive future. They'll come to faith, and Egypt will have a, a national salvation. They'll suffer 40 years of dispersion because of the long history of anti-Semitism, hmm. but then gathered, according to Ezekiel, and for the remaining 960 years of the kingdom, there'll be a saved nation called Egypt. That's great. That's great to know. Now, let me, the, in the present, Israel is, uh, as you say, experiencing the consequences of their disobedience. They're living in unbelief. I love the country of Israel. I support what they're doing, but how do we mitigate our support for a country that kicks out Christian missionaries and is, we know, is rejecting their Messiah, our Christ, our Messiah, our, our Savior? So that, 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 is that a little bit of a tricky uh, tightrope to walk between supporting what Israel does and loving them and yet condemning their, what they do um, in unbelief. Well, the example I use, I'm, uh, I'm an immigrant to America, I'm very pro-American and so on. I don't necessarily uh, support a lot of the governmental decisions the American government may make. So I don't support abortion, uh, legalizing it and so on. But as a country and the right to defend itself, I support the USA in these areas. Same thing with Israel. We support Israel Biblically, we us we are obligated to support Israel, to pray for the peace of Jerusalem and things of that nature, but we cannot support every decision the Israeli government might make, such as abortion, such as abortion and things of that nature. So, okay. we take those two things distinct. Yeah. And if we talk about Psalm one twenty two verse six, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We know prophetically, the peace of Jerusalem won't really come until they become a safe nation. So the practical way of praying for the peace of Jerusalem is to pray for the salvation of Jewish people today. So in Paul's Israelology in Romans 11, they, there are Jews getting saved today that he prays for, and they'll be, but he realizes the national salvation won't happen until the end of the tribulation, but Jews can be saved throughout this period, and he prays for both salvations, as well as national salvation, as well as individual salvation, things of that nature. So we should remember we can support a nation without necessarily supporting every policy that nation follows. 
That makes a lot of sense. And that's, I appreciate that answer. And actually that was going to be my last question, which I think you answered well. Uh, what does it mean to pray for the peace of Jerusalem? And the way I understood your answer was that we pray for the Jewish people to be converted right now as individuals to Christ. Right, because peace in Jerusalem won't be happening until you have a national salvation. Yeah. So they'll, they'll then, there'll be my periods of peace, but there'll be periods of conflict. Yeah, it's always puzzled me a little bit because we know that Israel's going to find peace in the end days when they are restored as a nation. So why do we need to pray for that? But you're saying to pray right now for the people of Israel to come to Christ. So we can pray for Israel's future national salvation and recognizing that prayer won't be answered until the second, just before the second coming. At the same time, he was also praying for individual Jewish salvation uh, in chapter 10, mm -hmm. uh, chapter 11, that this is the, and he was happy that individual uh, He's called the Jew to Gentile evangelism, but he always went to the Jew first every time, always to synagogue first, and then he went to the Gentiles. That was his policy. We also recognize that the more Gentiles he lead to the Lord, the more Gentiles will be available to provoke individual Jews to jealousy. Mm -hmm. Faith. Another way of looking at it, yeah. Most Jews today who are believers came to faith with Gentiles who provoked them to jealousy. The church as a whole has failed on this, but individual believers have not failed. Well, that I appreciate that that perspective. That's a, that that actually op opens up a little new vista for me to think about uh, praying for Jerusalem, the peace of Jerusalem. Because I've always wondered a little bit about exactly what does that mean for today. But um, and that's exactly what Ariel Ministries is doing, and so we appreciate your work in doing that. You've you've. Uh, had quite an effective ministry, I'm sure, in converting Jewish people. God's been good. God has been good. He's always good. So we we want to get again a thank you for this uh, discussion. I think it's been very fruitful, especially some of the uh, hints about how the Gentile church can talk about the Jews without using maybe the word church, crusade, other things that, that you mentioned. So we appreciate that. Well, we're gonna we're gonna say thank you and goodbye uh, to Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum, but it was a fruitful discussion. A lot of insight there from someone who's lived through a lot of history himself and experienced uh, what it is like to be a Jew in this world. And we do need to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Pray for Jewish people to be saved. And if you know those around you, direct them to uh, no Jewish people around you. Direct them to Ariel Ministries, perhaps online, or get the magazine or the other some of the other literature. And perhaps find let it find their way that their way its way into their hands uh, because it's very well done, well written. So we appreciate that discussion, and um, we look forward to you joining us again for another. Until all here, well, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more resources or to help spread the message of God's life changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.